Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our guest, Dr. John Foster. Dr. Foster is an associate professor at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Dr. Foster, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. It's my pleasure to be here. So I know that your interests are in biomaterials and tissue engineering. Can you perhaps share a little bit of your activities that relate to this big and broad area? We have a, a multidisciplinary research group that looks at uh, biomaterials from all angles, right through from microbial bioprocessing to the production of new biomaterials, through to small-angle neutron scattering for uh, determining how we can processing affects their structural conformation of the polymer chains. The particular aspect that's relevant for regenerative medicine, in fact, is the use of biomaterials to support uh, enhance wound healing and functional tissue regeneration. And in particular, medical devices that avoid the need for such as and other invasive repair technologies. So I know that you're developing new technologies, but in terms of eventual outcomes, can you give us an example of perhaps a typical outcome you foresee or have perhaps already realized? The 21st century technology of tissue engineering is pivotal upon the use of biomaterials. And we start off with simple biomaterials that we know can promote cellular growth and cellular adhesion. And then you try to move up to more three-dimensional matrices that support entire tissue regeneration. It's amazing to think that we've got to the point where we can engineer cardiac muscle in the laboratory or, or as here at the McGowan Institute where you can try to replace, engineer liver tissues, etc., but you're still reliant upon a technology that was developed in 4000 BC to actually introduce that engineered tissue back into the body. So such as remain the gold standard for wound closure by virtue of their strength, but in reality they have a whole host of associated disadvantages from being a nidus for infection through to failing to promote the, the functional tissue regeneration, scar tissue formation, um, they don't actually seal a wound either. So there's been quite a bit of research in the last decades or so looking at trying to avoid the use of sutures for wound repair. And sutureless technology has been one of the driving forces behind the research that we actually do, uh, in particular the use of what we've called surgilux, uh, which is a very thin-filmed surgical adhesive that we can use to close wounds without sutures and by virtue of that uh, use it for enhanced tissue repair. So is Surge Lux used clinically at this point? It's not used clinically at this point. However, we developed Surge Lux with the feedback from a whole host of surgeons. So part of the design criteria was that it could have a rapid transition from the bench to the bedside, as it were, without having to go through the enormous amounts and costly clinical trials. So everything that's developed with Surgilux from the materials to, to the laser technology is in fact already FDA approved as individual components. We've just found an innovative way to actually put them together. And so in principle, all we really would need to demonstrate would be efficacy in order to get it from the laboratory into the hospitals, etc. As an estimation, how far away might Surgilux be from a clinical reality? We're still talking a couple of years, at least. 
a lot of it depends upon the particular application you have in mind. Because sutures are used in a broad variety of medical scenarios and clinical scenarios, we want to see what the optimum function for the surgilux actually is in the particular niche. The one that's most promising at this moment in time would be for ocular surgery. Ophthalmologists are much more adept at using lasers and much more happy to innovate, as it were. And in addition, the eye is considered an external tissue, so a lot of the legislation that's required for internal wounds is not the same. That's why you get these cyanoacrylates being used off-label, as it were. And our studies so far in the animal trials that we've been using so far show that the surgilux will actually support the wound healing and then is ejected by the tissue. So the plan is that we're going to start some human trials by the end of next year. From then it could be just a year or so to get a company involved and get them to take it further. Sounds very promising. And mm-hmm. Well, several years may seem long to some people in the, this particular field. That's an extremely short period of time. So if you're talking about the use of this technology and this procedure for the eye, needless to say, the eye requires some fairly fine healing capabilities, so this must give you some pretty outstanding results. The curvature and clarity of the tissue in the eyes is is paramount for the actual function, and yet, once again, sutures don't support this. They do promote scar formation, and that interferes with the curvature and the, the visual acuity that you can get. Sutures are really quite bad in the eye to the point where if you have standard cataract surgery, incisions that are usually 1.5 millimetres or less, the ophthalmological surgeons prefer to leave them open. They just call them self-sealing wounds. What then happens, of course, is you get the prophylactic use of antibiotics to try and prevent infection. The eye, being a unique environment, actually has a lot of tears, turnover rate, turnover rate that's very quick. So when you take your standard antibiotic eye drops you're only really getting about 1% of the active ingredient penetrating into the tissue. And it only does that at the times when you actually take the drop, i.e. three times a day. So you've seen predominantly from the use of such eye drops the introduction of more resistant microbial strains. These eye drops are taken specifically simply because of prophylactic use. They, they, They want to prevent infection. And that's because they're having to use sutures and leave wounds open. So Another version of Surgilux actually has antibiotic impregnated within it, and the antibiotic itself can survive the lasering as well, so that it is released over a a short period of time once you actually put it into the eye. So you've got that kind of nice combination of wound closure, wound sealing, and local drug delivery at the same time. So may I ask, what's your next horizon, or is your total focus at this point on the eye? No, we're doing quite a bit of work here at the McGowan with uh, Professor Badalak. Professor Badalak's developed this ECM uh, biomaterials. And again, the focal point of our research in developing Surgilux was in fact to actually promote functional tissue repair, tissue regeneration in vivo, as it were. We've managed to show from our cell studies and from some of the preliminary work in animals that this seems to be the case with Surgilux. Um, however, what we've also done is followed on an impregnated particulate UBM within the surgilux, and again, that doesn't seem to interfere with the function of the, the sutulus technology, but it does seem to promote functional tissue regeneration. So we're at the point where we're trying to get some animal st- trials up and running here at the McGowan for repair in the dura mater, uh, and the dura mater uh, is, is another nice example. Surgeons do not like suturing so close to the brain. The dura can be quite tough. Again, sutures don't seal, and CSF leakage 
occurs in around 12% of cases. And although that's quite a low figure, the re-entry costs and hospitalisation costs for that 12%, uh, I think in one study suggested it was close to about 36 to 40% of the actual operating cost of the hospital. So it's a major sort of economic disadvantage to actually have surgical re-entry, not to mention the public health sort of aspect. So the idea there would be that surgicals could seal the wound, replace sutures, makes it a lot easier, seal the wound, and again, if we use the UBM-style variation of surgicals, we could probably get enhanced tissue repair back to normal strengths than you would do with normal sutures or with surgicals by itself. So it seems to me that for all these applications, one of the principal advantages is that you get a good seal. That yeah. You don't have sutures, which are basically point-contact seals depending on the spacing of the sutures. That's right. The changes in wound healing have basically followed that kind of scenario in the sense of of trying to get a good sealing but without sutures. So what you find is that the more recent techniques that have been successful have been the use of glues, adhesives, or laser tissue welding. Now, the commercial glues and adhesives that are on the market are all gel-based. Some of them resemble the old Aroldite-style two-phase systems where you have a long curing time and mixing. And if you can imagine from the simple mechanics of the process, a gel will not give uniform bonding to the tissue. In some areas it's thick, some areas it's, it's thin, etc. So you get this differential of bonding to the tissue. And it's very difficult, particularly if you're trying to look for something that seals, to actually get complete sealing. You will get leakage from a, a small point. On top of that, many of the adhesives that give reasonable strength are actually toxic, so you can't use them internally. The, the histoacryls from Biberon... Uh, Tis seal, which is fibrin-braced, of course, can only be used in association with sutures. The, the bond strength is just too weak. Laser tissue welding, on the other hand, relies upon, as it sounds, the actual welding of two pieces of tissue together. And there are solders that you can use which will focus the heat of the laser. But heat there is the, is the primary term. You're actually cross-linking collagen uh, forcibly by denaturing it. So you've got these nice gel adhesives and you've got laser tissue welding. And Surgilux that we're looking at is probably like a combination of both. We do not actually get above the irreversible denaturation point of collagen. So the collagen is, doesn't denature. You've got no ablation, no charring of the tissue. And on top of that, it's actually a thin film, which makes it far more easier to work with. And it also means you've got uniform sealing across the board. So when we actually applied it to the eye in vitro tests in the dura mater, we can get repair strengths in excess of 500 millimetres of mercury, which is about one-sixth the car tyre. Bearing in mind, the Dura has something like, what, 15 millimetres of mercury pressure under normal circumstances. The eye usually has about 40 millimetres of mercury uh, interocular pressure, can get up to 80 if you suffer from glaucoma, but there are some studies to suggest that if you rub or poke which is quite often common after you've had a surgery in the eye, you can get up to a couple hundred millimetres of mercury. So under these circumstances, even sutures that don't seal are going to you know, allow the leakage of fluid and an ingress of tear fluid that might also contain bacteria, etc. So it also occurs to me that because you use this film, that the scarring at the closure of the incision would be substantially less. Is that a correct presumption? That's what we're trying to test here. That's the theory that we're trying to test, yes. Uh, and you can imagine from the scenarios there that if you can enhance uh, functional tissue regeneration, that there's a whole sort of areas where this would have tremendous implications. We've mentioned the eye, so you'd get better 
repair of your ocular tissue, which would translate into better visual acuity than conventional techniques. The dura mater, again, is a sealing system where we don't actually have any commercial counterpart. Dura seal was a peg-based one uh, that they used in conjunction with sutures, but I think that's been taken off the market. Other areas that we're looking at is, of course, nerve repair, and we've actually had it in surgical in rats and shown nerve continuity for three days. What we really aim to do now is to take a look and see whether the UBM component of the surgilux will actually promote that nervous tissue regeneration. And we're developing further medical devices to look at bridging a nerve gap and not just simple anastomosis. So, Dr. Foster, I believe you also have some activities in some of the larger, heavier sutures. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Conventional sutures are predominantly synthetic in nature. The synthetic polymers give them the greater strength for a lower footprint. Our interest is the development of new bioresorbable sutures that would have the same sort of enhanced strength without being as large as current commercial ones. At the same time, we want to have these uh, sutures being smart, as it were, where they can actually promote tissue regeneration and reduce inflammation response. So perhaps this is a naive question on my part, but why... Are you concerned or interested in the diameter of sutures? One of the goals with sutures is to reduce the amount of material you actually need to put into the body. So surgical procedures are all based upon obtaining the optimum results whilst minimizing the amount of suture material that's being used. If we can replace those synthetic sutures with absorbable sutures, then we don't need surgical reentry. And at the same time, if we can reduce the amount of material, then we've got a better chance of a more enhanced tissue response. Now, conventional such as we mentioned, was stronger. And so the change from synthetic to more biologically active materials has often necessitated larger diameters and therefore more material. That's problematic. You've got a bigger chance for inflammation, etc. So there are techniques in designing both different polymers but also in the means of how you manufacture the suture. So, for example, multifilament sutures, single filament, etc. And it's a combination of those two kind of parameters that we're playing around with at this particular moment in time in order to get more effective bioresorbable sutures that are smaller and yet maintain the strength that's going to be required. Very interesting. Dr. Foster, I know you do a lot of multidisciplinary studies, and if I'm not mistaken, some of the work that you do relates to the cell interface. Can you share some of that work with us, please? Yes. One of the standard techniques for biomaterials that you'll see published in many papers is to grow cells on them. And this, of course, is one of the very basic principles of tissue engineering. Cell proliferation is only just one test that we actually do. We've developed substantial tests to look further at the cell material interface. So the nature of the cell interaction in terms of its health, we also look at progression of the cell cycle, and we have found quite often that certain materials will demonstrate similar degrees of cell adhesion and proliferation, but those populations of cells show different stages of the cell cycle. You can take that extent even further and say, well, how are the cells actually responding to that particular material? So we also take a look at the complete protein expression profile, the proteomic as it were, and take a look at materials from that point of view. And again, we've done that with our novel biomaterials. We've also done it with conventional commercial biomaterials. Some of the results have been extremely interesting in in showing that, for example, a a material that might be implanted in the eye shows a nice response in terms of cell proliferation, 
cell adhesion, etc., but is actually the cells themselves are producing proteins, one of which has been implicated in kidney cancer. So you need to take a look and see what's actually happening with the cells to a greater extent rather than just the simple adhesion, proliferation, etc. So your protocols that you're developing and using provide a good screening technique to look at different candidate materials, is that correct? That's correct, yes. By looking at the cell cycle and the proteomic response, you can do in vitro tests that will look a lot further down the track as to what the implications might be when you actually start to use these materials clinically. In a similar fashion, you can apply the protein expression profile systems to materials that are, in fact, biologically based. So the ECM biomaterials that are being developed here at the McGowan Institute have actually found their way into or their commercial equivalents, have found their way into over a million patients and are an accepted part of clinical practice these days. And yet the complete protein expression profile, what they're actually made up of completely, has not really been elucidated very much. And what we've actually done is, just recently published in Regenerative Medicine, the complete repertoire of 129 proteins that's present in an ECM derived from the urinary bladder matrix of pigs, for example. And they show, as you would expect not just the proteins involved in tissue remodeling and regeneration, but also anti-angiogenic, anti-tumorogenic proteins as well. The next phase of that is to take a look at them from a quantitative point of view, because obviously the relationship between individual proteins has a, an important balance on, on tissue regeneration. And to apply that then to other ECM biomaterials to see if the different tissue-derived biomaterials may have targeted applications clinically. So in addition to characterizing existing biomaterials, I presume it gives us an investigator like you an opportunity looking in the future to custom craft biomaterials that could be more ideal. Yeah, that is one of the factors when you're starting to look at tissue engineering. What would you put in to actually get the cells to develop into the tissue that you want? And of course, in that particular regard, people have been looking at the biomaterials themselves in terms of their actual chemical nature, but then also in terms of their structure. So it's the device, as it were, that you design, the matrix that's being designed, as well as the material inside it that it's composed of, which will actually result in the tissue that you want. So the cell part is, from a regenerative medicine point of view, is really just the tip of the iceberg. It's got this big material fundamental basis behind it. And a lot of what we find within the ECMs may very well allow us to manufacture, as it were, or design and manufacture a synthetic ECM that would be generically ideal. And whether or not that's commercially a viability is another issue. That's a bridge to cross in the future. That's right, yes. So, Dr. Foster, I know that you've been collaborating with our colleagues here at the McGowan Institute. I believe that this is possible because of the Fulbright program. Is that correct? That's correct. The Australian-American Fulbright Association provided me with a senior scholarship back in 2010, which allowed me to stay here for four months and get a great deal of preliminary work undertaken. That, in fact, has led to a very strong collaboration, and we've had an exchange of students and technical staff between Australia and the U.S. And again, I'm back here thanks to an alumni grant for a couple more weeks, and I've brought another PhD student as well who's gaining valuable experience and insight into techniques that we probably wouldn't normally use in Australia. And I think particularly with the Surgilux aspect, we're also showing some new techniques and giving some experience to researchers here as well. 
Well, the scientists at the McGowan Institute are strong believers in multidisciplinary collaboration, and that collaboration shouldn't be constrained by geographic borders, so we're very pleased you could be with us. So uh, again, we thank you for uh, joining us, for sharing your pioneering work and your visionary ideas about how to solve some important problems in regenerative medicine. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to say thanks to the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. To our listeners, we welcome suggestions in terms of topics. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we meet again with another exciting interview, thank you for listening. <music>